we'll restrict ourselves to the to the Hebrew Psalter, which is what we've got translation of that before us. Uh, so let's start out with Psalm one and two, which become, as some of the commentators say, they're programmatic. Psalm one and two are programmatic for the entire Psalter. So let's have a volunteer for Psalm one. Who wants to be brave and read Psalm one? Charlie, okay. Happy those who do not follow the counsel of the wicked, nor go the way of sinners, nor sit in company with scoffers. Rather, the law of the Lord is their joy. God's law they study day and night. They are like a tree planted near streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaves never wither, Whatever they do prospers, but not the wicked. They are like chaff driven by the wind. Therefore, the wicked will not survive judgment, nor will sinners in the assembly of the just. The Lord watches over the way of the just, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Good, all right. So... um this is a little, uh, a kind of a case in point, I think, of things that I've spoken about in the past. If you notice, and probably you, most of you have that translation. It's the New American Bible, correct? Is that the translation? Yes. Sir. Yep. And uh, the New American Bible is good. Um, you know, this is this is my personal estimate. New American Bible is good when you want to get at the sense of the text, and it's a good reference work, but. You know, as I've emphasized in times past, sometimes it's really good to go with a more literal translation because there's certain points, and specifically points that I believe the Holy Spirit is trying to make that are lost in the more in the looser translations. So it's it focuses a lot. The more literal translations focus on the words, the specific words, and the words themselves are important in Scripture. Now, if you want to get meaning, the the Translations like the New American Bible are good. They're good works to read to get the meaning. Uh, but so, for example, a more literal translation of Psalm 1 focuses on an individual person, but if you notice, it was plural. The righteous are spoken about in the plural. But literally, in the Hebrew, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Uh, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. So the, t- the subject is literally singular. And specifically with a little more robust kind of language, it says man. Man. Blessed is the man who walks, in the, um, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, so forth and so on. That's going to be important. I'll, I'll show you how, what I mean by why that's important later on. So let's go on though and let's read Psalm 2. Who wants to volunteer for Psalm 2? Chris, are you are you uh, into reading? Give it a try. Give it a try. Halfway through. That's okay. <clears throat> the universal reign of the Messiah. Why do the nations rage and the people utter folly? The kings of the earth rise up and the princes conspire together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us break their fetters and cast their bonds from us. He who is throned in heaven laughs. The Lord derides them. Then in anger He speaks to them. He terrifies them in his wrath. I myself have set up my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will will proclaim the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, You are my son, this day I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for an inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall rule them with an iron rod. You shall shatter them like an earthen dish. And now, O kings, give heed. Take warning, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice before him. With trembling, pay homage to him, lest he be angry and you perish from the way, when his anger blazes suddenly. Happy are all who take refuge in him. Good. All right. So this second psalm is, uh, I think it's clearly messianic. It's talking about the future Messiah. And the reason why I would say that is because it begins to talk about uh, this Davidic king in terms of nations in plural, and it becomes, it's almost like this cosmic context. Uh, it speaks about the Davidic king in a cosmic context, in a world, in the context of the entire world. So, for example, it says, ask of me in, in uh, verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So it's it's not really... David ruling over this little plot of land in Palestine, but there's this king figure who's ruling over the whole world, or at least that's the promised inheritance. And it's also an echo back to, well, where else have we heard this kind of foundational text that we've studied and talked about a lot, where we learn about the nations? Sinai. Sinai, sure, certainly. In what, in what connection with Sinai, with the nations? Just when Moses was talking Okay. 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 But when was he talking to the nation of Israel in particular, like a single nation? Yeah. Yeah. So what's the other the other main uh, passage that we've gone over um, with the third mediator figure, nations? Bring you know we're talking about nations. Abraham. Right in Abraham. Okay. So if you go to Genesis twelve, that really foundational important text where it says. Uh, in your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. So we see here really an illusion. This messianic king is, uh, he's living up to that uh, Abrahamic promise. All the nations are going to be folded up and somehow um, they're going to be blessed and uh, in this seed of Abraham. But then we have this messianic king who is going to rule the ends of the earth and the nations will be his heritage. So this messianic king fulfills that Abrahamic promise. And we but we've seen that already because of that word seed, if we can remember. We talked about how um, in the passage from Chronicles and in Second Samuel chapter seven, I believe, or maybe it's seventeen, I think it's chapter seven, talks about David's seed, and it's very clear it's the Messiah, especially in Chronicles that comes out. It's this future individual king who's going to come. And um, also, uh, the uni- his universal reign is really spoken about there as well in the Chronicles passage. So, the seed that's spoken about in Abraham is the seed of David, and we see that seed of David in Psalm 2. Also, where else do we see the seed? The other main passage that we see this word seed. It's the most probably one of the foundational passages of the whole Bible. It goes all the way back to the beginning of, of Genesis. So you got the seed of Abraham, then you got the seed of who? Um, We're talking about how the Savior was going to crush the seed. It was in the garden. Yes, right. Yep. 
Yep. So you've got uh, the seed of the woman, and then you've got the seed of the serpent, this conflict between the, these two different seeds. So the seed of the woman is the seed of Abraham, is the seed of David, is the Messiah, and, and he is the subject of Psalm 2. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together are very programmatic for the entire 150 Psalms. And I'll show you how I'm, how I'm getting that, how other commentators get that, the commentators that I, I read at least. So if you go to Psalm... Um, the outline here is uh, right here in front of us. Go to Psalm 15 and 24. We've got this theme all throughout the 150 Psalms, and we've already talked about it in, the, in previous sessions, is we have Mount Zion. So we've got all these mountains that are contrasting, right? Uh, we got the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. You've got Noah offering a sacrifice on Mount Ararat. You've got Abraham on Mount Moriah offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. And then you've got Moses with Mount Sinai. And you've got David on Mount Zion. And that's we see that if just really quickly here we go back to two. It says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the Messiah is connected to Mount Zion. This this hill, this holy hill. And the holy hill shows up all throughout the Psalms. And the holy hill was where the temple was. Okay, so you got the temple of the Lord, you got Mount Zion. And uh, and then you've got Jerusalem in general as well, the city of God. And these things, we shouldn't be... We can look at them literally, but we, we need to understand there's a mystical fulfillment of these items, of these objects or these subjects. Uh, and it's really talking about heaven. It's talking about the church of Christ. It's talking about the body of Christ. Christ's body being the temple. The church being the temple. Um, the the new heavens and the new earth that promised land or space of communion between human beings and God. That's really what it is. It's a space for communion between human beings and God. But in any event, you've got Psalm 15. So let's go there, and I'll uh, I'll read. Hi, George. I'll read Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in thy tent? Who shall dwell on thy holy hill? So you've got this connection. The tent is is basically you know, the temple. That's the forerunner of the temple. So you've got God's sanctuary where God dwells, where men and women go to meet God, and then it's synonymous with the holy hill, the same holy hill we've seen in Psalm two, Mount Zion. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth from his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his friend or takes up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now, this is talking about the righteousness of any righteous person, but there's a kind of an ideal righteousness that's being exemplified here and placed before us, and it's associated with the holy hill. So we have the Messiah on the holy hill, and then we have this perfectly righteous man. That's why it's important for Psalm 1 to be about an individual man. So then we have this righteous man in Psalm 1, 
and this righteous man in Psalm 15 who dwells on Mount Zion. But we know it's the Messiah who dwells on Mount Zion in Psalm 2. So the righteous man of Psalm 1 and the Messiah of Psalm 2 are identical. They're identified with each other. We also see this uh, another reinforcement of the, the holy hill or the hill of the Lord is Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Verse 3, 24, 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, nor does he swear deceitfully. Uh, so forth and so on. It goes on. So it, it describes this, this ideally righteous man, and that's the one who shall dwell in Zion. But we know it's the Messiah who dwells in Zion. And we know Psalm 1 is all about this righteous, this ideally righteous man. So the point being is that the, this man in Psalm 1 is the Messiah of Psalm 2. And the ancient fathers talked about basically something kind of obvious. is like this is the incarnation, that God became man. The first line of the Psalter says, Blessed is the man. And we know that the Son of God... We read about in Psalm two, you know, says, "Thou art my son." He is man. He is a fully incarnate man uh, in Psalm one, and so we have this king who is going to come in the future, and he's going to be perfectly righteous. And of course, we know uh, that Christ was without sin; that Jesus, our Lord, was without sin. He was perfectly righteous, and he fulfilled the law in a perfect in a perfect manner. So Psalm 1 and 2 together prophetically are about the Messiah, about who is, who is Jesus. So that's kind of uh, programmatic for the entire Psalter, and that's what we begin the Psalter with. But let's step back for a moment, take an overview of the whole thing. Now, interestingly enough, the book of Psalms is broken down into five distinct books. Okay, So book 1 is Psalms 1 through 41. That's the first book of the Psalms. Book 2 is Psalms 42 to 72. Book 3 is Psalms 73 to 89. Book 4 is 90 to 106. And then book 5 is 107 to 150. Now, what other, what other set of books comes in fives in the Bible? In five. The Pentateuch, okay? Pentateuch, right? So you've got the books of Moses, the law. The law. He's got five books. So the Psalter is like it's the law. And remember, we got Psalm 1. It's all about the law and the righteous man who observes the law. So the Psalter is a, basically like a condensation of the entire law. It's all condensed into 150 Psalms. And then we've got an even more condensed Psalter in our Catholic tradition. What's that? What else has got 150 in it? Well, now it's got 200 after John Paul II, but it used to have 150. The Rosary. Okay, so that's the Marian Psalter. So that's even more condensed. And because in the, in the Marian Psalter, we're meditating upon the mysteries of Christ's life. But the Psalm, the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, is all about Christ's life. Jesus is the subject. Okay? And then the, and then the Psalter is a condensation of the law. So it's like the law is less obviously about Jesus, but it is about Jesus. The Psalms are more obviously about Jesus, but maybe not so as obvious as we could get them to be. And then we've got, actually, in the New Covenant, we pray to Our Lady, 
but we meditate on Jesus' mysteries. Now the Psalter is, I'm sorry, the, the Rosary is basically the Psalms and the law revealed to us in the New Testament. Okay? So the monks, the ancient monks used to just memorize the Psalms. They memorized all 150 Psalms. And some of them, they would recite 150 Psalms a day. <laughs> That's what they would do. Just take a few hours out of the day and recite 150 Psalms, you know? And they did it every day. You know, you'd have the whole book memorized. It wouldn't actually be that difficult if you did that every day, right? You know, it might take you uh, maybe a year or two of doing that before you got them in your mind, but then afterwards it'd get quicker and quicker and quicker. You could probably do the whole Psalter in maybe like, you know, only eight hours or something like that, you know, six hours, seven hours. So, but if you did that every day, you'd start to be able to see all the mysteries. All the different connections would, t- would become fused in your mind. And it would be, if you did that, you'd really want to use a literal translation uh, because, again, the connections between the different Psalms would come out all that more clearly. But there's a kind of a logic and a progression in the five books of the Psalter. So this little review here I got up on top of our sheet. Uh, the first and the second book of the Psalter, they focus on David's life. So David plays a very, very important role in books one and two. Um, And in fact, the last psalm that ends book two says, and here the prayers of David are ended. So it's it's like explicitly uh, book one and two of the Psalter is focused really on David. What psalm is that? It's uh, Psalm 72. Psalm 72 verse 20 says, the prayers of David are ended. So then in book 3 of the Psalter, uh, we, we see the discouragement that Israel feels because they, uh, Davidic kings are no longer reigning. And so we've got this really crucial event. Again, maybe a quick little review of history. Okay, We've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob around 2000 B.C. or so. Maybe around the 13th century before Christ, we've got Moses and the Exodus taking place. The children of Israel... They go uh, to the Holy Land and they get there and for about maybe 200 years or so they don't have any kings. They just have these figures called the judges. And then starting around the year 1000, you've got the first kind of... Well, you've got Saul, but he's a little bit, of a, he's a little bit of an exception. And in a certain sense, the first king is King David and he's about year 1000. And then you had... Um, David's son Solomon and then Solomon's son and it's under Solomon's son that the kingdom of Israel that was united under David splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And then around the year 720-something, the northern kingdom, which was called Israel or Ephraim, that's demolished by the Assyrian Empire. And Judah, the southern kingdom, continues going on. Judah's uh, where we get the word Jew from. So Judaism, you know, is focused from Judah, the southern, the southern kingdom. That's got the temple, they've got the Levitical priests there. And that lasts until about 580, 586 BC. And that's when the Babylonian Empire takes over the southern kingdom and the Jews go into exile. And they're in exile for about 70 years. And the exile is a perspective from which much of the Old Testament is written. Okay? And, uh, if you can recall, you've got these... Um, remember how I use that uh, analogy of the human body? There's these cells in our human body, but in each cell there is a master program that would form the entire body. So the entire body is basically in each cell because the DNA of the body is in each cell. So how the Bible is constructed where you have, you have genetic... You have like the entire Bible condensed into these little passages... 
and the little passages together make up a cell and they make up the whole thing but the whole thing's in the in the individual parts and then the individual part of course is in the whole thing um, well I, I say that to say just to remind you of one of these little these cells within a cell this wheel within a wheel kind of idea we have on Mount Sinai the reception of the law and the children of Israel becoming the people of God but then they worship the golden calf and they fall. And that's like an echo of the commandment that was given to Adam and then his transgression and his fall. And then both of those together are like an echo of the nation of Israel going into the promised land and then committing idolatrous acts over the course of hundreds of years and then them getting kicked out. Just like Adam was kicked out of the garden, so is Israel kicked out of the Holy Land and they're in exile. So this fallen state, this exilic state, is the perspective from which the Old Testament is written oftentimes. So book three of the Psalter is from that perspective. Our Davidic kings are gone. They no longer have kings ruling over them. And so they're not a sovereign nation anymore. And they're oppressed by Babylon and by Persia and by all these different foreign rulers. And they're in slavery. And so it's a, it's kind of a sad part of the Psalter. Um, so there's a little bit of this longing for the Davidic kings to come back. And, uh, and then in book four, um, so talking about slavery, where was the other major time period when they were in slavery, when the Israelites were in slavery? Under Moses. Uh, with, right, Moses liberated them from Egypt. Okay, so when they were in Egypt, they were in slavery. All right. Now, what liberated them from slavery in Egypt was the Exodus. They exited their place of slavery. All right. So it's kind of like a reverse exile. You know, it's a positive exile. They were exiled from slavery, and they went into a positive place where they would dwell with God and have communion with God. And then, because of their sins, they got another exile. Now they're in a new place of slavery, but it's Babylon. It's not Egypt. And so, Book Three of the Psalter longs for another exodus, so that they would exit, exit out of slavery and go back to the promised land. And that's how the prophets are always envisioned. There's this great exodus, a future exodus that's going to take place. It's going to liberate the children of Israel and they're going to come back to the land and the land is going to flourish and they're going to have the Davidic kings restored to them and one Davidic king in particular is going to be restored to them and they're going to be, be in the ascendancy and all the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem and worship the Lord in Jerusalem. And that's ultimately fulfilled in our Lord who performed a new exodus okay, at the cross. And through His sacrifice at the cross, the slavery, the universal slavery that all human beings are under, the universal Egypt that all human beings are subject to, the universal Babylon... Uh, you know, under the whose whose who's thumb all human beings are um, has been destroyed, and that is sin. It's destroyed at the cross. So there's a new exodus, and all of those promises are, are they come to a head in in Christ. Now, book four of the Psalter points to that new exodus. So there's this hope for this new Davidic king who's going to come and liberate uh, the, the people of God. And then also book five is similar. Book five is very book five has got an interesting set of psalms. It's called the Psalms of Ascent. And if I can just skip ahead to book five, if you turn the back over, it says um, Psalms one twenty to one thirty are the Psalms of Ascent. 
and they're pilgrimage psalms. So they're all about taking a pilgrimage, uh, sacred journey to Jerusalem and to that holy hill and to the temple. And uh, so the idea is they're coming out of exile and they're going up to Jerusalem to the temple and they're going to encounter the dwelling place of God. And uh, that temple and that dwelling place take on, uh, you know, you've heard me use this big fancy word before, an eschatological character, meaning an ultimate, a final character. So it's the temple, not literally at Jerusalem, but this kind of, uh, this final temple that's going to come, this final dwelling place of God and, and, and man. So... Okay, so uh, how about we look at Psalm 8. If you notice, uh, you can just kind of glance over with your eyes. Uh, Psalm 1 and 2 are messianic. Starting with Psalm 3, we have all of the headings and it says the Psalm of David. And then every, so Psalm 3 is a Psalm of David, Psalm 4 is David, Psalm 5 is David, Psalm 6 is David, Psalm 7 is David, okay, and then 8 is David as well. So these are all Davidic Psalms, and we've got to imagine, but if David is a figure of the Messiah, there's a messianic flavor or character to all these Psalms. And I think it's also the case in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is very unique, though. Because um, Psalms 3 through 7 are about David being persecuted. And that's uh, just in alignment with Psalm 2, where it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against His anointed? So you see David in conflict with the nations, with his enemies, all through Psalms 3 and 7. But then Psalm 8 is a little different. It kind of relieves, there's not this persecution. Something very different. It's, it's very beautiful. It's a creation psalm. And uh, I'll, I can read it. Psalm 8. So it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Thou whose glory above the heavens is chanted by the mouths of babes and infants. Thou hast founded a bulwark because of thy foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So now the enemy that we've seen in Psalms 3 through 7 has been stilled. Okay, and the enemy has been suppressed and done away with. And remember, we've got this theme of the enemies, and Abraham was promised that, you know, um, the, the seed of Abraham was going to be the catalyst by which Israel's enemies would be suppressed, finally. And then, of course, the seed of the serpent, uh, the seed of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 is. Uh, the the enemies of uh, the seed of the woman. So anyways, these, these enemies, though, are silenced. So now here's verse 3. When I look at thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast established, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? So we've got man and the son of man. And if in Psalm 1, which featured this perfect man, if that was in a certain sense about the Messiah... Probably also, this is about the Messiah as well here. And this is definitely how the New Testament reads Psalm 8. And then, of course, our Lord is referred to as the Son of Man all throughout the New Testament. It says, 
Yet thou hast made him little less than God, or little less than uh, angels or gods, and dost crown him with glory and honor. And remember, we were talking about how Adam had the glory of God in the beginning, and then he fell from that. And so it's in this uh, man that the glory is seen. We've got the glory in the heavens that the psalm starts with, but man himself, this particular man, has got glory as well. And it's really through him that the glory that's in heaven comes to earth and reaches us. And we're able to encounter God's glory. Um, So verse 6, Thou hast given him dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. And very interestingly enough, the author of Hebrews says, he quotes this psalm, you know, Hebrews quotes this psalm and he says, but we do not yet see everything subject to us. So we don't, we're, we're still at enmity with animals, right? Because of the fall, the original sin, the curse that was there. And we've got the serpent who's coming against us and the animals are no longer subservient to human beings and nature is sort of at odds with man. So there's a certain sense in which this psalm is is just not fulfilled in us, but it is fulfilled in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, who has all things subject to Him, who's at the right hand of God with all principalities, powers subject to Him. Okay, so that's Psalm 8. It's a little... Do you want to say... Did someone say something? No? Psalm 8 um, is a little bit of a break. And we go back, and starting in Psalm 9 onwards, we've got these more lots of conflicts with, uh, with David. And we see um, in Psalm 17 and 18, we see lots of conflicts. But God delivers David from his conflicts because of his righteousness. Because of his righteousness. And that again goes back to Psalm 1 where we see this man who's ideally righteous. Now, we, in a certain sense, David was not ideally righteous. What was David's sin? I'm sorry? What was, the great, what was that sin that David committed, the famous one that he committed? Yeah, adultery, right. Adultery and... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. Um... So, you know, you have the adultery and the murder of Uriah. And uh, remember how we've got, this, we've got this theme of, you know, uh, God gives grace to an individual or a people group and they just can't seem to hold on to it and they, let, they fall from it. So Adam fell from grace. Israelites, they received the law, they were sanctified by it, but they fell with the golden calf. Why is that? That, that when God gives grace... Well, by our freedom, human, human nature just can't can't control or handle. The... Well, it, it's 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 the you know in God's salvation history, this is just the pattern. That, I mean, it's a pattern, right? So we fall from it. So David now is this exalted character, but he falls too. He has his fall as well. But it's Adam, right? Fall from grace. Yeah, I mean, it's Adamic. You know, it's Adam is Adam is kind of a, a picture, an image of human beings in general. But there's going to come a man who doesn't fall, who really is ideally righteous, and that's Jesus. 
And so it's in Jesus that we really can be righteous. We can't be righteous in ourselves. And that's kind of the theme of the, I mean, that's the message of the whole Bible. Exactly does that mean? I, I was wondering, what sure. is that uh, being righteous in Jesus? Exactly, does that mean? Uh, Proclaiming his name. Yeah. Um, Being righteous in Christ is uh, Jesus uh, at the cross, he merited all graces for us. Okay? And so uh, he is the meritorious cause of our righteousness of our justification and all those graces are communicated to us through uh, the sacraments specifically through baptism and that righteousness that's revealed to us in the gospel is an inner state of being and this is really really key and there's there's a difference between Protestant and Catholic thought on this one um, Righteousness in the in the Catholic tradition or justification in the Catholic tradition is a real intrinsic state of the soul. It's a transformation. It's an inner transformation of the soul. I've, I've spoken about this many, many, many times, and I don't mind repeating it at all because it's very important. It really is kind of the centrality. Uh, it's the central thing of the gospel. And of course, I know not everybody's here for all the different sessions. But uh, Saint Paul says in Romans chapter one, I think it's verse eighteen or so. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And the righteousness that St. Paul is talking about there is that inner transformation that we have uh, through Jesus Christ. It's an inner transformation. And it, uh, it outworks, it works itself out in our life through real righteousness. So we really are called to be righteous, literally meaning that we have to do righteous works. Like, like follow the Ten Commandments. Like follow the Ten Commandments, exactly. So that, so that Christ, through whom the law is fulfilled, might be evidenced in our lives. That ideally righteous person that we see in Psalm one, that we can actually demonstrate that to the world, and not just say that we're just. What's a synonym for righteous? Just. Just would be another. Moral. Uh, yeah, morally upright. Sure, morally upright. But it's it's more that see this justice that we're talking about though it's a state of our soul it's a it's a transformation it's something that elevates us and likens us to God so it can't be reduced just to behavior but it does behavior is part of it okay righteous works are part of it but it's an it's an it's grace okay it's what we talk about when we say persons in a state of grace or sanctifying grace that is justice or justification or righteousness it's an inner state of being. And when we sin mortally, we lose that. But through repentance and faith, we can gain it back. In the sacrament of penance, we can gain that back. And our goal is to maintain that justice and to grow in that justice throughout the course of our lives. And so there's a spectrum of holiness. Some people are holier than others. Okay. Hopefully, we all maintain that state of holiness until we die, because without it, we won't go to heaven. But... Even for all the people who are in that state of holiness when they die, some their level of sanctity is much more intense than others. And so you have very great saints and you have small saints. And you've got everything in between. Okay, So there's a big variety of sanctity within the church. And we'll see that that will become obvious in the resurrection. We'll be able to see some people will be extremely, extremely holy and others will have kind of gotten into heaven by the skin of their teeth, but that's okay. 
You know? They're there. That's good. But the point is there's a huge spectrum. There's a degree of sanctity. And St. Peter exhorts us to grow in grace. So grace is not just a quality that resides in God. His merciful tendency to forgive us and to draw us close to Himself. But grace is a reality that abides also in our hearts and in our souls. And there are degrees of it. And that's why we can grow in it. Peter says grow in grace. So... Mark, does that help a little bit? Like if you say, what is it to be righteous in Christ? But all of that is through Jesus. And the initial justification that we receive, we receive it not on the basis of any works that we do. It's purely through faith and repentance. Okay? So it's not on the basis of works, that initial justification. Could you say, say that again? It's purely through what? Patience? Through, through faith, faith and repentance. And repentance. Yep. So those are the two most fundamental... Uh, foundations for justification is faith in the gospel, faith in what Christ has taught us and revealed to us, and sorrow for our sins. And that's that's the foundation. And then justification is built on that. And then once we're in a state of grace, we can do good works and grow in grace and grow in righteousness through our good works. That's only because we've got a stockpile that's already been given to us by God freely. And we kind of grow it. We work with what's been given to us and we're able to grow in grace. But, and this is something that I preach about a lot, and I would say it again, and I, I never tire of saying it, the final grace, the grace of final contrition, the grace that's going to ensure that we die in a state of grace, can't be merited. It's, only, it's, a, it's an unmerited grace, and the only way we can receive it is through prayer. That's why we pray the Hail Mary, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. And so I tell repeatedly everybody all the time, every day, we should be asking for the grace of what's called final perseverance, or the grace uh, that would ensure that we're in a state of grace at the very last moment of our life. Because we can live in a state of grace our whole life, but if we lose faith and we, we sin at the last, last few minutes, the devil's got us. So we've got to stay in faith and holiness right up into the last second of our life. Rick? Does that tie into the, uh, the uh, parable of the talents? Or building the... Yeah, absolutely. That's good. Yeah, so you've got uh, you've got the yeah exactly. That's what it is. So God gives the talents, right? They didn't produce the talents. Uh, like it's absolutely impossible. This supernatural state of justification, absolutely impossible for us to produce that out of our natural persons. Okay, absolutely impossible. So it's given to us just like the owner gave the talents. Okay, but once they had the talents, they worked on them and they were able to make them grow. They had you know. They could make them grow through their works. So they labored, they earned more, but it was because of what they had to begin with that was given to them. Okay? If uh, after a person dies and you have a mass for them, mm-hmm. but if they weren't in a state of grace, the mass doesn't... It's, it's useless, but we never know who's in a state of grace and who's not. And so we always offer masses and we always pray for the dead because we never know. <clears throat> People could appear to be unbelievers and be resisting God's grace, but there's moments that happen between, you know, the second when their soul's in their body to the second that their soul's out of the body. You just never know. You never judge that kind of stuff. So we always pray for the dead, and we always offer masses to them. And if perchance it's uh, the the you know the grace won't be effective for them in purgatory, it will be effective for someone else in purgatory. So it won't be wasted, you know. No, 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 nothing, no mass or no prayer is ever wasted ultimately. But 
is it is it like suffering wrong? You suffer for wrong. Would that be uh, some grace that would be given you, and you sure. just got to keep suffering through that? Sure, it can be. Yeah, sure. So you can suffer for doing what's right, and then you can suffer for as a result of your sins, right? Is that kind of what you're saying? Suffering no, as no, a, you, some, you, someone's doing. Oh, something. someone's doing wrong to you. Wrong, and Innocent right, suffering. Yeah, and then re- yeah. try to retaliate on you. No, no, no. You shouldn't. Yeah, no. yeah. No, no. Innocent suffering is great. Yeah, it's it's very. It's very valuable. Yeah, you grow in grace through that. Because you're imitating Jesus. You know? Didn't you speak on forgiveness or consequences at the Sunday Uh I don't know. You're going to be forgiven, yeah. but you still have consequences. But there are still consequences, yeah. yeah. Now, you know, God can take away all the consequences like that if He wants, but just sometimes, in fact, they're there. You still have consequences. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that's why would we be offering masses for people who are dead? Because there's a, there's still temporal punishment that they're undergoing in purgatory, and our the mass and the prayer that we pray and the mass that we offer relieves their their suffering in purgatory. It helps them expiate their sin, basically. Okay, um, let's go to Psalm 22. And if you look on the sheet, I kind of have this roundabout way of getting to Psalm 22, and it's kind of it's it's a uh, you know you might think I'm stretching it or reading into these psalms, you know, which is fine if you want. But a lot of these reflections come out of out of years and years of not necessarily me reflecting, but scholars and and the faithful and more devout traditional commentators thinking about these things over and over again, and. So if you look at all these early psalms, all the way up to Psalm 8, it's David who is the subject. If you keep going on, it always says these are David's psalms. David's this king. He's a type of the Messiah. Um, If you look in Psalms 15, 17, and 18, um, uh, there are things that lead us to believe they're kind of messianic in character. Um, Psalms 20 and 21 uh, there's more points again. It kind of I don't have time to get into these, but there's other points in 20 and 21 that lead us to believe that they're about the Messiah. And then we get to Psalm 22, and it's not crazy for us to think that this is prophetic of the Messiah. Okay, so how about we have someone read Psalm 22? Nancy, do you want to read? Go ahead. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my prayer, from the words of my cry. O my God, I cry out by day, and you answer not. By night, and there is no relief for me. Yet you are enthroned in the holy place, O glory of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they escaped. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man. The scorn of men despised by the people. All who see me scoff at me. They mock me with parted lips. They wag their heads. He relied on the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he loves him. You have been my guide since I was first formed, my security at my mother's breast. To you I was committed at birth. From my mother's womb you are my God. Be not far from me, for I am in distress. Be near, for I have no one to help me. Many bullocks surround me. 
the strong bulls of Vashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me like ravening and roaring lions. I am like water poured out. All my bones are racked. My heart has become like wax, melting away within my bosom. My throat is dried up like baked clay. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. To the dust of death you have brought me down. Indeed, many dogs surround me. A pack of evil doors closes in upon me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look on and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my vesture they cast slats. But you, O Lord, be not far from me. O my help, hasten to aid me. Rescue my soul from the sword, my loneliness from the grip of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild bulls, my wretched life. I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, give glory to him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not spurned nor disdained the wretched man in his misery, nor did he turn his face away from him. But when he cried out to him, he heard him. So by your gift will I utter praise in the vast assembly. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear him. The lowly shall eat their fill. They who seek the Lord shall praise him. May your hearts be ever merry. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall bow down before him. For dominion is the Lord's and he rules the nations. To him alone shall bow down all who sleep in the earth. Before him shall bend all who go down into the dust. And to him my soul shall live. My descendants shall serve him. Let the coming generation be told of the Lord, that they may proclaim to a people yet to be born the justice he has shown. Okay, very good. So, um, if all these psalms around this are messianic, it's not unreasonable to think that this is messianic as well. And it seems like the experience that David is talking about kind of transcend. We don't. We can't really look at an event in David's life and say this is this matches something that happened in David's life. So, it you know the idea, the Christian idea that the Messiah is going to suffer. I mean, it's really. I think it's really present. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like this is the crucifixion. I mean, are we are we reading this? I mean, if we if we think it really is a historical fact that they divided the garments between them, that that they actually didn't break his bones, but that his bones would have been pull, his joints would have been pulled out of the bones would have been pulled out of joint, you know, the dryness, all it, it, you know, and then the result. It seems like the result of this suffering that this Messiah figure goes through. The result is that the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before Him. So that Abrahamic promise is being realized through, or at the, at the, as a result of maybe this suffering that this Messiah figure is going through. Uh, it's very, it's very kind of eerie, you know, and chilling. It's, this is this is the suffering of of our Lord. That's how many years perfect. before that. In time frame was that? I mean, if David wrote this, it's a thousand years. Correct. Right. Right. You know, if David wrote this, 
Some people might doubt David's authorship, but it's not going to be still going to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ uh, uh, suffered. So, uh, in addition to this psalm, we can go to Isaiah 53, which is a very chilling prophecy of Christ's suffering atonement, atoning sacrifice. And uh, I would say Daniel 7 as well is another prophecy of the suffering of Messiah. And then Wisdom chapter 2 as well. In fact, let's go to, let's go to Wisdom chapter 2. In my Bible, Wisdom comes right before Ecclesiasticus, which comes right before uh, Isaiah. It's going to be Wisdom chapter 2. Yeah, it's before Sirach or before Ben Sirach. This is the great wisdom hunt. So I'm I'm sorry that some of these Bibles have different orders. I don't I don't know how to. Yeah, I don't know if I'm guilty of that or not. Charlie thinks I'm guilty. He's I'm, I'm responsible for that. It's going to be before Isaiah, I would think. Well, he's got. Oh, you've got a Protestant Bible, probably. King James. Yeah, it's that is not one. No. Oh, that's a Catholic. This is the best Protestant Bible. No, but it's one that. Yeah, yeah, it's one. It's one that's unique to the Catholic. Unless you got a Protestant Bible. What are they doing in here? Okay. All right, brother, we found him and I. I'm going to read this thing. Okay, so let's go to Wisdom chapter two, verse uh, twelve. Okay, now remember, we've got this ideally righteous person in Psalm 1 who is the Messiah. But in Wisdom chapter 2, we've got these evil people and they're saying, let us lie in wait for the righteous man because he is inconvenient to us and opposes our actions. He reproaches us for sins against the law and accuses us of sins against our training. He professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child or servant of the Lord. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of Him is a burden to us because His manner of life is unlike that of others and His ways are strange. We are considered by Him as something base and He avoids our ways as unclean. He calls the last end of the righteous happy and boasts that God is His Father. Let us see if His words are true. And let us test what will happen at the end of his life. For if the righteous man is God's son, he will help him and will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. Let us test him with insult and torture that we may find out how gentle he is and make trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him to a shameful death for according to what he says, he will be protected. So. I mean, really, it sounds like what the sufferings of Christ and what, what talks about God's Son. This would have been about maybe 150 years or so before before Christ's suffering. Yeah, 
Yep. And then you and then you have a passage specifically in the Gospels. I don't know right off the top of my head, but the the people who come by the cross and they mock Jesus and they say, "If you are God's son, call upon him and he'll help you." So they're actually then echoing exactly these words in the Book of Wisdom. So. And Isaiah, what was that? Isaiah fifty-three. That's the big one. Yeah. I mean. That's. Uh... Isaiah 53 is like it's painting. G- I mean, I know. It, it tells you more about the crucifixion than the Gospels do. I know, and that's not, that's a thousand years ago before you had. It would have been about uh, seven hundred years before. Okay, so um, yeah, so we close out book one, book two of the Psalter. Um, let's see if we can cover this here. Let's read Psalms 42 and 43. Who wants to be brave? As no, but thank you. As is not brave. No, not when it comes to reading. Oh, okay. Everything else. Bill, you want to read? <laughs> yeah, I can try. Why not? Okay, give it a shot. Go, go, do forty-two for us. Forty-two. <clears throat> as the hand, as the hand song longs for the running waters, so my soul longs for you, O God. Ezrist is my is my soul for God, the living God. When shall I go and behold the face of God? My tears are my food day and night, as they say to me day after day, Where is your God? Those times I recall now that I pour out my soul within me. When I went, when I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God, Admit loud cries of joy and thanksgiving with a multitude's keeping festival. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why do you sigh within me? Hope in God, for I shall again be thank- thanking Him in the presence of my Savior and my God. All right, that's good. So if you... Good, thanks, Bill. Okay. So if you go through that psalm... Uh, a little more closely, what you see is uh, the psalmist is remembering a pilgrimage or a festival, feast day, in the temple. And he's now, his soul is cast down because he's essentially alienated from the temple. Okay, so that kind of festival, the liturgical celebration, the, the worship of God in the temple of that holy hill that we've been talking about, he's, he's exiled from it. And um, book three, oh, I'm sorry. So that, that, that's important just to note. Okay, so let's go to Psalm 43, okay? Uh, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From deceitful and unjust men deliver me, for thou art the God in whom I take refuge. Why hast thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. 
And I will praise Thee with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are You cast down, O my soul? And why are You disquieted within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise Him, my help in my God. So you've got this, again, an alienation from the temple. Alienation from the altar. Alienation from this privileged place of worship and communion. And he's, he's alienated, but he's asking God, send out your lights. Send out your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. We really, I really believe this is, the stuff can't be limited to a literal, the literal reading of the, the actual temple in Jerusalem. There's something much deeper. It's heaven that's being spoken about here. It's God's grace leading the psalmist to that special place of, of intimacy and communion. Now, uh, the temple becomes, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, this really, uh, uh, an image of a communion and a living together between God and man, which is ultimately fulfilled at the end of the world in, in the eschaton, that phrase I keep using. Uh, and if we go to the... So this begins book 2, the Psalm 42 and 43. Let's go to the ending of, of book 2, and that's Psalm 72. Yep. Now, in my in my Bible, I don't know what you guys have in your Bible, but it's headed. It says so. It says seventy three says book three. Do you guys have that? Do you have any? Okay. Right, third book. Okay. So we're on seventy two. It's a Psalm of Solomon. Okay. Give the king thy justice, O God, and thy righteousness to the royal son. Okay, so we've got the son of the king. May he judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor uh, of the people. Give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. So this this king is here to stay. All right? It's hyperbole, but maybe it's not hyperbole. I mean, maybe it's literal. It's really about a Messiah who will live forever. May He be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In His days may righteousness flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May He have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, this is the Messiah because He has dominion over the entire earth. Not just Israel, but the entire earth. May his foes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. What does that sound like? Remember going back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent will eat dust. Okay, so you've got the serpent who is the who is at enmity with the seed of the woman. Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. And his foes, the enemies of the Messiah, are going to come and lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. So the Gentiles are going, to, are going to be in allegiance to this Messiah. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. 
May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit like uh, be like Lebanon, and may men blossom forth from the cities like the grass of the field. May His name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May men bless themselves by Him. All nations call Him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May His glory fill the whole earth. Amen and Amen. So, the glory filling the whole earth, that is the destiny. That is what God created the world for. Is so that glory, God's glory, would fill the whole earth. And the seraphim say this in the, Isaiah, in the vision that Isaiah has in Isaiah chapter 6. And they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, in a certain sense right now, the whole earth is full of God's glory. But in another sense, it's not the case. It's... It's a state of being that is yet to come, and we're waiting for that. And in Numbers, God swears to Moses and He says, as surely as the whole earth will be full of My glory, so forth and so on, I will do X, Y, and Z. So it's an absolute certainty that all of creation will be full of God's glory. But we know from Scripture that the temple in Jerusalem is the privileged place of God's glory. And there's this famous event when Solomon goes and he offers all these sacrifices and he builds a temple, he offers all these sacrifices, he dedicates the temple, and it says this cloud of God's glory comes into the temple and it's so intense that the priests can't even stand and they fall, that they fall over. And, and so God's glory comes and dwells in the temple. So the temple is the dwelling place of God's glory. Well, we just started book two with this guy who's longing for the temple. See, he's alienated from that privileged place of glory. And then book 2 ends with the Messiah through which God's glory is filling the whole earth. So that longing, that desire of the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43 is fulfilled ultimately in the final psalm of this book through the Messiah when the entire earth becomes, as it were, the temple of God, the place of His glory. It's also very interesting that Psalm 43 is the psalm that the priest says in the old, Tony knows this, in the extraordinary form of the, of the Roman rite, when the priest comes up and he starts doing the prayers, if you guys can remember this, and he's, he's got the little servers at their side and they're mumbling Latin to each other, they say Psalm 43. Okay? And so it says in Psalm 43... O send out thy light and thy truth, let them lead me, let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And so what it's doing is acknowledging that the Eucharist is that privileged place of God's glory. And it's through the Eucharist that that vision of the Messiah and the earth being full of God's glory is realized. And that's why before... The consecration, we say what the seraphim say. We say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so we're waiting for the Messiah to come so that the whole world would be full of God's glory. Because He's going to come Eucharistically. He's going to come sacramentally okay, in the Eucharist. So that's a, there's a coming of the Messiah every Mass. And there's like a mini-realization. So it's an actualization of God's grace spreading throughout the world because of the holy sacrifice of the Mass.
So that's uh, Psalm. Uh, that's the book two. Now, if we go to uh, book three, it's Psalm seventy-three to eighty-nine. Now, this is this book really correlates with Israel's exile. They're outside of the Holy Land. They're longing to go back to the Holy Land. Uh, they're waiting for a new Exodus to liberate them from the Babylonian captivity. Um, and we don't have time to go over all these all these things, but what's very interesting here, I'll just kind of point it out, is that um, you have this you have this uh, creature called the Leviathan, this great sea creature, okay, and then it talks about the dragons in the water, and it talks about how God's creation of the world was like Him overcoming this dragon. But it also, basically what it's saying too, this is in Psalm 74, that when God parted the Red Sea and He liberated the Israelites through the Red Sea, that was like God destroying Leviathan who is this sea creature, this kind of demonic sea creature, this dragon figure. Okay, And then, this psalm is set really in the context of the exile, so they're in Babylon and they're longing for a new exodus. They're longing to be liberated from Leviathan, from this dragon. But who's the dragon? It's the, it's the devil. Okay, That's the serpent that we hear about in Genesis 3. And that's going to be at enmity with the woman and with the seed of the woman. And so this new exodus that liberates us from Leviathan is, is fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Christ, who overcomes the serpent finally once and for all. So it's subtle all throughout the Bible, but the devil shows up all throughout the Bible. He, he, he he's appears in different guises: the Leviathan, dragon images, serpent images, all this stuff. Uh, okay, let's go to Psalm eighty-nine. It's kind of a long one. Okay, if you look in verse 3, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Verse 3, Thou hast said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one, I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your descendants or your seed forever and build your throne to all generations. Okay? Verse 19. Of old thou didst speak in a vision to thy faithful one and say, I have set the crown upon one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall ever abide with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. It goes on and on and on. It talks tons about about David. In verse 35, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. His lineage shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. It shall stand firm while the skies endure. But, let's, let's hear what he goes on to say. But now, in verse 38, Thou hast cast off and rejected. Thou art full of wrath against thy anointed. Thou hast renounced the covenant with thy servant. Thou hast defiled his crown in the dust. Thou hast breached all his walls. Thou hast laid his strongholds in ruins, all that pass by to spoil him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. 
Thou hast exalted the right hand of his foes. Thou hast made all his enemies rejoice. Thou hast turned back the edge of his sword, and thou hast not made him stand in battle. Thou hast removed the scepter from his hand and cast his throne to the ground. Thou hast cut short the days of his youth. Thou hast covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, wilt thou hide thyself forever? How long will thy wrath burn like a fire? Remember, O Lord, what the measure of life is. For what vanity thou hast created all the sons of men. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of death? Lord, where is thy steadfast love of old, which by thy faithfulness thou didst swear to David? Remember, O Lord, how thy servant is scorned, how I bear in my bosom the insults of the peoples, with which thy enemies taunt, O Lord, with which thy mock thy the footsteps of thy anointed. So you have this point of view of the exile. If you read the first part of the psalm, the psalmist is remembering the glory days when David and all his sons were reigning in Israel and Israel was independent. Now they're in exile. All their enemies have overcome them. They've destroyed it. looks like they've destroyed the Davidic lineage, that it's gone. It's been wiped out. But there's still that longing for, the, for that Davidic lineage. And he's just got done saying, God, you swore that the throne of David would be forever. And so we're waiting for this. So the book three leaves us in this kind of point of, a, of a suspense. Okay, like how is this going to happen? All the Davidic kings are destroyed. What's, 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 the, is the, Messiah going to, what's the Messiah going to be like if David's lineage has is, is been defunct? All right? So... It's going to have to be fulfilled in some in some way. Now, if we go to book uh, four of the Psalter, it's Psalms ninety to one hundred six. And uh, Psalms, if you can look at my notes here, says Psalms ninety three to one hundred talk about God's kingdom and how God reigns over all the nations, and that nothing can stop God. In his purposes, when he whatever he wants to do, he does it. And the way that they're positioned, it's as if the psalm, uh, sorry, the psalter is responding as a whole is responding to Psalm eighty nine with that longing for the Davidic king, that longing for the Messiah, and it's saying um, basically the Lord can and will fulfill His promises to Israel and David because of His omnipotent power, and that nothing can ultimately thwart. His will. Okay, so we we are on a ho- an upbeat, hopeful tone, and then Psalm one hundred five and one hundred six, we've got um, hope for a new Exodus, which I've talked about some more. Okay, so the mood of the Psalter starts to pick up, and things start to become a little more optimistic and positive, and then we f- we finish it off with Book Five of the Psalter, which is uh, Psalms one hundred seven to one hundred fifty. Psalm 107 is very clear. It's about the ingathering of all the exiles. They're coming back to the Holy Land. Okay, so it's very, very joyful. All the exiles are coming back. And then we've got this really important psalm. It's the psalm that's most quoted in the New Testament, Psalm 110. So let's have someone read Psalm 110 for us. We're going to have a brave soul. Rich? 
Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The scepter of your power the Lord will stretch forth from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Yours is princely power in the day of your birth in holy splendor. Before the day star, like the dew, I have begotten you. The Lord has sworn, and he will not repent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will do judgment on the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush heads over the wide earth. From the brook by the wayside he will drink. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay. So, it's really Psalm 110, in certain sense, is really almost a kind of a climax point of the, of the book of Psalms. And uh, we really have the messianic king of Psalm 2 showing up in Psalm 110, and this time he's a priest as well as a king. Now, there's probably two ways of reading this. You notice that it begins with the heading, A Psalm of David. So let's say, let's do one kind of reading. Let's say that um, the, the perspective of the, the psalmist is uh, an anonymous author, and he's talking about David. Let's, just say, let's envision that. Let's imagine if that's the correct way of reading it. Okay. So the psalmist is talking about David. He's saying, the Lord, meaning God, says to my Lord, meaning King David, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Okay? And he's, and he talks about how he's a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. And that would make sense because King David took over Jerusalem and Jerusalem was the city of Melchizedek that the king, the, the king priest Melchizedek ruled over Salem. Okay? We, we read about that in Genesis 18, I think, or in Genesis 14. And so it could be David that is the Lord that's being spoken about here and is the Melchizedekian priest king. But if that's the case, he would be a type of the Messiah because he's talking about like crushing the whole earth and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's too grandiose for it to actually be fulfilled in David's life. So that could be one way of reading it. Now, another way of reading it, which is probably the more traditional way of reading it, following how our Lord himself reads it in the Gospel, is that... Um, it's King David speaking. And King David is saying, the Lord said to my Lord, meaning my future son, who also happens to be my Lord. Okay? Because he's the Messiah. So David, and that's why Christ in the Gospel says, if David calls him Lord, okay, so he makes all these points about that, alright? So that could be, how could he be his son? Right. Because Christ is the son of David in one sense legally. He's an heir to the Davidic throne, but he's virgin born, you know, and he's, you know, he's, he's God incarnate in the, in the womb of the virgin, so in a certain sense he's not David's, he's not biologically David's son. Okay, he's greater than David. Alright? Why, why is he, why is it said David's, why is he called David's son? Why is it listed several times? Oh, yeah. Well, he is David's son legally. He has to, to be the heir of the throne. And that's why Joseph is specifically... Okay, so in the Nativity narratives in Matthew, maybe in Luke as well, it's very specific. The angel shows up to Joseph and he says, Joseph, son of David. 
Do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for what is born in her is holy, so forth and so on. So Joseph was in line in the Davidic line. And so because Joseph legally recognized Jesus as his son, Jesus then was the next heir to the throne. So he is David's son in that in the sense. And he's called son of David. And, yeah, he is David's son in that sense, but just not biologically because he only had you know, a mother. Not and not a not an earthly father. It also says something about he will be given the throne of David. He will be given the throne of David, his father. Sure, yeah. So does that mean that David was sitting there, and then, in a sense, Jesus showed up, and David had to get up? I mean, what? It just means it doesn't. It, I don't understand what happens to David. I mean, I understand Jesus coming in, but then we're. It's like this. It's the same thing. It's we use the term with a pope. The pope sits on the chair of Peter. Right. Oh, okay. You see? So the Pope succeeds to the chair of Peter, so the Messiah succeeds to the, to the throne of David. He says, I, I am the root and the offspring of David. Mm-hmm. Exactly that part yeah. confuses me. I am the root the roots and, the and the offspring. Yeah. The root, the source. He's the source of David because he's prior to David. And he's God. There's other ways to interpret that, but that that would be one thing that's getting. I mean, yeah. Isn't it also uh, like the first explanation of the Trinitarian God? Because now there's a Lord yeah. and there's a Lord. Yeah, absolutely. So you see the Trinity here, and in fact, um, some translations say. Okay, so my translation here says, "From the womb of the morning, like dew, your youth will come to you." But other translations, and in the Vulgate and the Greek Bible. It talks about like uh, there's like a begetting, the 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 Messiah is begotten. So it talks about the the eternal begetting of the Father and the Son within the Trinity, too. I mean, so it's it's deep. There's a lot. It's very surface. We're going over the stuff in a surface surface manner. So let's call it a night. Or I mean, let's call it a night as far as reading goes. And let's uh, questions. Uh, Mark, maybe you can hold off. I know you've got questions, but we can have other people just yeah. Tony. Yeah. Well, shouldn't we hate the sin but love the sinner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How does that Sure. Well, you look in uh, uh, crushing heads, I mean, the footstool, that's nothing compared to crushing heads, you know. So you've got that, all that kind of language is all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Psalms. I really believe it's fulfilled, and this is, I, I, w- I would argue to the death on this point is that I'm not reading into the text. Like Someone might say, you're a Christian, you're spiritualizing these Old Testament texts, and you're reading into them. They didn't really mean this, but I don't think that's true. I really think these are spiritual enemies that are being talked about here. So that's what all the overcoming, you know. So when Christ ascends into heaven, it says all these things are subject to principalities and the powers, the demonic powers, dark powers of darkness. Because remember, the original enemy is the serpent and his seed. Okay, it's Satan. Is the enemy. Mm-hmm. All right. So these are unseen enemies that are, and so you you, you can't interpret this literally, you know. So we okay. we do we don't pray for the salvation of the devil. He's not going to be saved, unfortunately. That's the one. You know. I mean, he's he's done for. So he he's enmity. Period. Whereas human beings, we uh, we're never to regard them ultimately as enemies. So could the a- the enemies be the actions of sin? Maybe in a, in a certain because, sense, sure, in a certain sense, yeah. Because then the sinner could be saved 
from his enemies, from which his is enemies, from his sins. Which is from yeah, his sins. sure. That could be one way of looking at it. I think more, more obviously, it's demonic beings who are the enemies. Okay, thank yeah. you, Father. Yeah. Any other thoughts? They don't have to be, you know, questions or anything. Just kind of observations or. Yeah, I, I, I do have one question. Okay, go ahead, Mark. You started talking about how it went to uh, out of David, and then the last thing you started talking about is Judah. Yeah. And that's where the line went. Is is Judah a man or is that a tribe? I, I it's both. Oh, Judah was originally an individual. He's one of the twelve sons of Jacob. Jacob's also called Israel, right? Israel's a nation and an individual. So Judah is also an individual. And then all his descendants, the tribe of Judah, come from the individual Judah. Who are the Jews? Who are the Jews? So that's where the Jews are just one tribe of the twelve. Okay, the other have been dispersed. The the Levites, so they're really the two tribes that are kind of like bloodline is kind of semi-identifiable. Is the Levites and the, uh, in fact, not not really the Levites, but the priests within the Levites, the the Kohanim. And in fact, if you ever meet a a Jewish person who's got the last name of Cohen or Katz, does that ring bell? Do you guys know Jewish people with names like that? It's probably because their lineage is a priestly lineage. They're the Kohanim. Okay, so the two the two blood lineages of the Jews that can be identified are the Jews from Judah and probably the priests the Kohanim, who are Levites. And the others have been just dissipated into history. They're, we don't know what, where they are. They're gone. That was my question. Oh, yeah. So then you've got so then you've got all this mythology, the Ten Lost Tribes. You know, and the Mormons think that the Ten Lost Tribes came over to America and the American Indians are the Ten Lost... You know, it's a very... It's like it's in, it invites a myth or a legend. You know, the Ten Lost Tribes, where do they go? Where are they? You know, so you've got all this... Okay, so well, what do you? So, what's your point then, or what are you thinking? Is that where they all? Disturbed? I mean, the really honorable men just take it upon themselves to say we all married foreign wives, so. You're probably thinking of Ezra. In Ezra, but that's the Jews though coming back from Babylon. That was the Jews though. It wasn't the twelve, the other ten tribes. The ten tribes were in the northern kingdom, and they were dispersed in 724 under the Assyrians. And some of them became the Samaritans. And Ezra's the guy. So the Samaritans are traced back to the northern kingdom. Charlie, were you saying Ezra's the man? Ezra. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ezra's a man, but Mark was saying that if you read the book of Ezra, what happens is the Jews come back from Babylon, they go back to the Holy Land, and they start marrying outside the tribe, and Ezra gets really mad at them because they're not supposed to be doing that. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna dissipate the bloodline. Sort of regeneration there. I'm sorry, what? Isn't there some sort of regeneration going on there? Uh, In as much as they're they're making a good effort to keep the to marry in the tribe and keep it pure in, in that sense. Yeah. I thought it was pretty big. I mean, you don't seem like it's not that significant. That, that they can... Oh I, oh, I think there's tons of meaning to it. There's tons of stuff. Everything. I never I, I never underestimated anything in the Bible. It's huge. There's a lot of stuff to it. 
of the, the line of the seed of David yeah. in regards to Jesus. Yep. Alright. That so the, that that lineage goes to Saint Joseph. Right. Alright. Saint Joseph is a king. So so Saint Joseph was the king. So God so Jesus now Mary now Holony didn't go back to David. I'm sorry? Did Mary's lineage go back to David? It's not super clear in the Bible, but it's a tradition that it did. And it very well might have. That that Mary is also of a, from from David as well. So then Jesus would his his would be the Holy Spirit and the, uh, so I'm sorry? Uh, Jesus' lineage yeah. would be of the Holy Spirit. Oh I see what you're saying. In that sense, and, yeah. And then uh, yeah. and um and yeah, if Mary, if Mary is of the Davidic lineage, which she very well might have, and it is a very ancient tradition, it seems to be credible. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who is was ordained bishop of Antioch by apostles, probably a very ancient author, seems to testify to that that Mary was of the lineage of it was a Davidic lineage. So, in which case, there is a sense that you could probably say uh, Jesus was literally of the flesh of David, but just not in the sense of a. Son from from King David, like from the patrilineal, not from the patrilineal side, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting to reflect about Saint Joseph as being in royal, having royal blood, and even though he was a poor man. So what do you? What else? Uh, you want to just call it a night? Is that good? Okay. All right. You're very welcome. Thank you.